All right, buddy, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Actually, no, Exodus chapter 15, verses 20 to 21. We're talking about a woman of the Bible right now. She's a strong woman of the Bible. She's a significant person within the text. And, uh, and so I think it's, well, this is just going to be a good day. So turn with me, Exodus chapter 15, verses 20 to 21. If you don't know where the book of Exodus is in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. Please use it. And by doing so, you're going to learn where things are. So Exodus 15, 20, 21, here is what it says. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. And this is Miriam, the sister of Aaron, the sister of Moses. And this is immediately following the crossing of the Red Sea. This is a pretty cool story. So let's pray together and we're just going to dive right on it. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking at Miriam, your prophet, your daughter, Lord, that we would look at her life and, and learn from it and learn about her interactions with you and her interactions with others so that we could then apply uh, these truths to our lives, that we can grow more in the likeness of your son, Jesus. And so, Lord God, would you give us eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you. Amen. So, women have always played an important role in the Bible. And, uh, and it's important for us uh, to, to really remember this. Like, we got to remember people like Esther. we got to remember people like Deborah that we talked about last week, or Mary Magdalene that we talked about the week before. There are many others that he's also used in the Bible, but another person that warrants discussion is Miriam. Miriam is an interesting character within the Bible. Uh, you might be wondering who she was and what you can learn from her, but she was used by God from a young age to impact Moses' life. As a matter of fact, uh, she's referenced in the Bible, uh, her initial referencing in the Bible doesn't actually reference her name. So, who is she? Right, because what we know is that she, she influences Moses' life. She ultimately becomes one of the leaders in Israel. And so who is she? What do we learn about her? Well, Miriam was Moses' older sister. Uh, and she's not actually talked about a lot in the scriptures, but she did play an important role in the life of Moses and the nation of Israel. So there's some key areas where Miriam is mentioned in the Bible. And it starts off with Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So this is her first mentioning. It's right after... The, uh, the birth of Moses, or a short time after the birth of Moses, it says here, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, which means that he was healthy, right? So when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and a pitch. So she basically made a little boat. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood in a distance to see what would happen to him. That was Miriam. And the child in this story is Moses. So Miriam, um, at a young age, stands off in the distance and watches what's going to happen with Moses, who's placed into this basket, right, into, and put into the, the water. We then see her at the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, she's leading a dance of celebration. We just finished reading about that in Exodus chapter 15. 
And the Israelites had left Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. The oppressors, the Egyptians were killed in the Red Sea. So Miriam, the prophet Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them. And so she sings this song. Uh, and there's, there's, a, there's a song that's based on this passage that we used to sing in youth ministry. I, I forget how it totally goes, but the horse and rider fell into the sea. Kerplunk, you know, that kind of idea. Um, but she sings this song and she's leading these other women, um, or these other women are dancing and singing along with her and she's leading them and she's leading worship. You then find her in a really interesting story that I think we can learn a lot from. You find her... Um, complaining or, or criticizing Moses. This is the next mention of her. She stirs the pot for, with Moses regarding Moses with her brother Aaron. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses. Now, the indication here is that it was a public uh, talking, a public disgruntledness complaint. But listen to this. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he married a Cushite. So it's interesting. You see, you see her mentioned in the scriptures in terms of when Moses is put into the basket, put out into the water. She's standing in the distance to see what will happen. The next mention, interestingly enough, has to do with an experience with water again. You know, they pass through the, the, the water that God had parted. Egyptians go through, they get flooded out, they die, and, and then she sings this song. And then next we find her with her brother Aaron complaining about Moses because of his Cushite wife. That's interesting, right? So this is what we know about her times that she's mentioned in the scripture in terms of um, within the story of, of her experience with Aaron and Moses and the Lord. We know that the scripture tells us that she was actually uh, a prophet. Miriam was mentioned in the Bible as a prophet. She's one of the few women in Scripture that was given this title. It's a distinction um, that was given to her in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, right? It says, then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, which also happens to, of course, be Moses' sister. But there's no records in the Bible or anywhere else that we could really find of any of her prophecies. It's important to note that prophets don't just speak about the future. They mostly declare the word of God. And so in Numbers, she clearly makes a statement indicative of her being a prophet. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, right? Um, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. And then she says, has the Lord, not, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? They asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? Right? And so it's the indication of course, uh, of the evidence of her being a prophet. In Micah chapter 6, verse 4, it says, I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you in the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. And so God mentions Miriam, uh, Miriam in Micah as one of the leaders that helped bring Egypt, uh, the Egypt, sorry, Israel out of Egypt. So Miriam was a prophet. She was a leader in Israel. And it was her reasonably along with Aaron to assist Moses along with the people. And so this is how she was recognized in life and even after she died. So what do we learn about her? Well, we learned that she was a quick thinker. When Miriam, when we first see her, she's watching what would happen to her brother right after Moses is put into the water. And the rest of the story shows the kind of 
of intelligence that she had. And she was a really quick thinker, and her quick decision had a drastic impact on the first few years of Moses' life. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 5 to 9, it says, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw a baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Like, think about that. So very quickly, she sees that Pharaoh's daughter finds the child, right, finds Moses, and she approaches her and says, hey, should I get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And she says, yes, go. And so the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. So imagine this, right? So Moses' mom places him in the basket, puts him in the Nile River and, and for his own safety. And then Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Moses' sister says, hey, let me go get a nursemaid for him. And then brings Moses' mom forward. And Moses' mom now gets paid to be his mom, like to, to nurse him and to take care of him. Miriam was smart enough to see the situation happening and make a quick and decisive decision. And in doing this, she reconnected Moses with his mom. And this was critical to Moses' life because there's no doubt that this helped shape his formative years. But then we also see, not only is she quick and smart, and, and certainly she was a woman of worship, right? We see that in the text as well. But another thing that I want to highlight is that she got in trouble for how she interacted with her, di her difficulties with Moses. There was one instance in Miriam's life that didn't go well for her. And that's when she decided to speak out against Moses and his wife. They were bringing into question Moses' decision because he decided to marry a Cushite. Now, you may not be familiar with what a Cushite would be, but a Cushite is, in the Bible, equivalent to what we would refer to as Ethiopian today. So he married an Ethiopian woman, a Cushite woman. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses. Moses, a Jew, apparently married a black African and... This was approved by God, and we learn in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. So Cushite is obviously from Cush. It's a region in south, uh, south of Ethiopia where the people there in, in the Bible times were actually known for their deep black skin. Uh, and so this is just what was known. And there wasn't necessarily a racism that we are familiar with in the text at this point because there's no indicators of that. What we do know is that there was something, some kind of issue that Miriam had with Moses having married a Cushite woman. And we're going to get to that. But in Jeremiah chapter 13 to verse 23, it also references the Cushites, right? And again, and Ethiopian and Cushite are interchangeable. So can the Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots. And so there's this referencing of the skin of the Ethiopian. And, and it was actually deemed to be absolutely beautiful and gorgeous in its day. But then it says here, then also you can do good, uh, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil, right? 
the same word uh, used to translate Cushite in Numbers 21 is the word used for Ethiopian in this particular passage. But attention is drawn to the difference of the skin of the Cushite people and kind of elevates them in that regard. In his book, Every People and Nation, The Biblical Theology of Race, Daniel Hayes writes that Cush is used regularly to refer to an area south of Egypt, and that would be what we would consider modern-day Ethiopia. And above the uh, cataracts of the Nile, where the black African civilization flourished for over 2,000 years, and so it's quite clear that Moses marries a black African woman. In response to Miriam's criticism, God doesn't get angry at Moses. He gets angry at Miriam. And the criticism has to do with Moses' marriage and Moses' authority. Most explicit statement relates to the marriage. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married, and he had married a Cushite woman, and then God strikes Miriam with leprosy. It's interesting. A couple of things that are interesting in there are this. Uh, when the conflict was taking place, Miriam's name was mentioned first, which is an indicator that she was the one who was kind of leading the conversation in terms of difficulties with Moses. But the other indicator that she was the one that was kind of held responsible was that she was the one that was struck with leprosy, not Aaron. As a matter of fact, nothing happened to Aaron. And so there's something here about the Miriam being the one to initiate her difficulty with the leader that God had raised up for Israel. And so there's a couple of possibilities that emerge in, in terms of why this Cushite issue was an issue. In God's anger at Miriam, Moses' sister, God says, in effect, like it could be a race thing, right? You like being light-skinned, Miriam? Okay, here you go. Have some light skin. And then the cloud gets removed, and the cloud that God is talking through gets removed, and Miriam is immediately struck with white, leprous skin. It actually says white as snow, according to Numbers chapter 12, verse 10. Now, again, the difficulty with that theory is that there's no real indicator that there was a racial concern at this point. And so we want to be careful with race baiting the passages. Right? Like there's no, there's no racism referred to here, and yet at the same time, we can't ignore the fact that Cushites were known for their deep, dark skin, and Miriam was struck with a, a discipline that affected her skin. Like we can't ignore that. There's something going on there. Um, but the other theory that could be, uh, that I think might have some traction, is that Moses was a holy man of God, and he shouldn't be married to someone who would have been considered cursed by God. Here's what I mean. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 to, 20, uh, 18 to 27. Listen to this. This is important. The sons of Noah came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. There were the, these were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who scattered all over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, plant, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of the wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. This is another way of saying that he was naked. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it across his shoulders. They walked, laid across their shoulders, walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. Because 
there, there's a shame piece in, in this language here. You're not supposed to see somebody naked like this. When Noah awoke from the wine, he found out what his youngest son had done, and he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will be to his brothers. He, is also, he also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be a slave to Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. So clearly, there's a curse placed on Ham in terms of his relationship with his brother Shem and Japheth. But it's referencing Canaan. And so it's the idea that it is the lineage of Ham that is cursed. Now listen to this, Genesis chapter 10, verse 6. And the sons of Ham, you ready? Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And so we don't actually know what the issue was with Moses and the Cushite. What made that an issue? What we do know is that the Cushites are descendants of Ham, and there is a possibility that one of the concerns was that Moses, a holy man of God, would have been married to somebody who was considered under curse. But we don't know for sure. We have no idea what the issue was with the wife of Moses being a Cushite. But the good news in this story is that even though we don't know that, we do know the outcome for Miriam. So Miriam is struck with leprosy. Uh, Aaron and Moses plead with God to be able to have her healed of the leprosy. And so she is going to be healed of the leprosy. She is going to be forgiven. But she's seven days outside the camp wrestling with leprosy. But the good news is that the leprosy was only temporary and God healed her. But she still had to deal with the consequences of it, right? So she was still outside the camp for seven days. And so here's some of the lessons I think we can learn from the life of Miriam, as it relates to um, specifically her dealings with Moses, you could say. Uh, don't complain publicly about your faith leaders. It's actually one of them. When Miriam got frustrated with, Moses's, uh, with Moses because of his wife and the decision he made to marry this lady, um, he, she spoke out publicly. And this is something that we all have to guard against. Every leader is going to make decisions and choices that you're not going to agree with. This is a reality. We know this. We, we constantly are aware that we're not going to fully agree with every decision that somebody is going to make. And most certainly, we, our leaders are the ones that are more um, identifiable in terms of decisions they make because it's always under a spotlight. Every leader will make decisions and choices that you're not going to necessarily agree with. And, and if it hasn't happened yet, which is really unlikely given the last two years. But if it hasn't happened yet, just wait. It will happen. And when it happens, we need to be careful how we speak publicly about the leader and possibly even raise support against the leader. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no benefit to you. I actually think this is probably one of the passages of scriptures that is least known for us in the church. <laughs> I think about what it was like before I was a pastor. 
And I had all the right answers, right? Well, the pastor should do this, and the church council should do this, and deacons should do this, and, you know, all these different things. I knew everything, right? Like, my way was the best way until I got into leadership, and I found out, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on here that I don't know. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. You catch that? As those who must give an account. And so because... There's this watching over them because they're, they do so as those who must give an account. Don't make it hard for them. Believe in them. Support them. Pray for them. Have confidence in them. It doesn't mean that you can't ask questions. Certainly ask questions. Ask for explanations. But we're to have confidence in our leaders. And it says, do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden. Don't be a burden to your leader. For that would be of no benefit to you. If you're a burden to your leader, it's not going to benefit you, right? Like if, if, if you're causing leaders to feel as a leading you is a burden, then there's no way that they're going to be able to lead you very well. So have confidence in your leader. They're going to behave as those who have to give an account for you. And, and this is the relationship. Their work and their leadership of you will be a joy. And, and they will experience that joy from engaging with you. And hopefully you will also experience joy from engaging them. There's a story of a pastor and his wife. They went to a church where um, there was a group of people that, well, they just weren't happy with the decisions their pastor had made. And in their unhappiness, uh, they eventually led themselves to a lawsuit where they tried to sue in order to get the pastor removed. That's an interesting thing. I don't even know how that works. I want to suggest this is not pleasing to God. And they didn't win that lawsuit. You see, leaders are not perfect. And you got to be mindful in how you deal publicly with their imperfection. A good place to start would be to remember that, well, none of us are perfect. We're all imperfect people. And so let's not hold our leaders. I would say this. We hold our leaders to account, right? Those who teach are held to a higher level of accountability. I accept that as a pastor. We hold our leaders to account. But at the same time, let's remember that we're all to attain to the same level that we're holding others to. And also remember this, the, the scripture teaches that the measure by which you judge, you will be judged. So let us be honest with ourselves as we move forward. Um, but if it's a direct sin issue, now there's a difference between disagreeing with our leaders, right? Which is what was taking place here with, with Moses, presumably, because it's unclear as to whether or not it was in fact actually a sin issue. So if it's not a sin issue, disagreeing, that's okay. They don't have to agree with you, and you don't have to agree with them. But hopefully you can have a resolution. If it is a sin issue, that persists. Well, that takes us to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 21. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. And the worker deserves his wages. And then it says this, verse 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. That's a good one. But those elders who are sinning, now the language of are sinning is those elders who are continuing in their sin. Right? Not the ones who you've, you've approached them, you've taken that Matthew chapter and you, you've approached them one-on-one -on -one and they dealt with it and they said, yeah, you're right, I'm repenting, I'm moving forward. If they continue in their sin, 
It says here, But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. So in other words, if somebody is sinning, if an elder is sinning, if I am sinning continually, living in it, you're to call me out publicly so that everybody else around will benefit from it. That's what it means to lead. To be willing to be called out publicly if you are sinning. That's part of what it means to lead. I charge you, he says, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality. In other words, not based on your preference. And do nothing out of favoritism. Without partiality, nothing out of favoritism. So what do we do? When somebody is in sin, we call them on it, right? We go one-on-one, we deal with it. And if they, refuse, if they accept it, great, repent, move forward together. If they don't accept it, and especially, like specifically, if it's a leader who does not receive the correction, the next step is to call them up publicly. Whew, that's hard, but it's true. But we're to do so without any kind of favoritism. So it's not based on whether or not we like the person. It's not based on whether or not whatever they're doing has to do with our preferences. This is a sin issue. And so we deal with that. So this is one of the things we learn about Miriam, right? We don't complain publicly about our leaders. We do this privately unless it requires us to do it publicly after we do it privately, right? All right. Um, Then we also understand the role that God has placed us in. One of Miriam's complaints was that God doesn't just speak through Moses. He also speaks through her too. And it appears that she forgot the role that God has called her to. There are many times when you'll be the leader and there may be times when you're called to be the support. You got to be sure of the position that God has placed you in for that particular season of your life. And so even though the leader may not always get it right, don't automatically assume that you would do a better job. Especially if that's not the position that God called you to. Sometimes you might think that you're smarter, more gifted than the leader. And you know what? The honest truth is that's, yeah, you might be. You might very well be. But you don't, gotta, you don't get to forget that God called that person to lead. So your role in their life then is to be an equipper. Your role in their life is to be a support. Miriam was smart, decisive. She was a leader and a prophet, and no doubt that her life impacted Moses' life where, and, and therefore, by extension, helped all the other Israelites. And we don't know all the things that she did, but we do know that she was given by God to a nation of Israel to help lead them from Egypt through the wilderness as they journeyed to the Promised Land. Miriam's story is one of greatness and sin. She's remembered as a prophetess and a leader. She danced in celebration worship. She's also a lesson for us examining our motives when we criticize and confront others. So like, here's two questions, I think, that are critically important that would have been good for Miriam at the time. Uh, and I'm not imposing anything there. I just think that these are good questions for all of us when we're dealing with discontent that we have towards a leader. First thing would be this. Are we trying to correct somebody or wound them? Are we trying to correct somebody or wound them? Like, is this a, hey, I love you and I want to see good for you, so here's some correction. Or is it, I am angry at you and I believe you need to be punished. Do we want to correct somebody or wound somebody? Secondly, are we 
concerned or are we jealous? Are we concerned or are we jealous? Do we have a legitimate concern for what's going on in their life? Or do we want to be treated differently than maybe we are? Are we doing, what are we doing? Are we doing something? Are we criticizing? You could say constructive criticism leads to correction. Uh, harsh criticism leads to destruction, right? Are we trying to correct or wound? Uh, am, I, am I actually concerned about what's going on or am I jealous of what's going on? Do I want to be influential? Is that my concern? Her story is also an example of God's promise to forgive. When we repent of our sins, like God forgives. The Bible is filled with examples of God's promise to forgive. Actually, one of my favorites, and I'll end with this passage. This is my favorite one as it relates to God's forgiveness. Psalm 103, verse 12. Some of you may know it well already. Um, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our consequences, from us, our transgressions from us, our sins from us. And so in the life of Miriam, what we find is that, okay, so yes, Miriam did wrong by Moses. She was forgiven by God. She still dealt with the impact of that, right? She was still put out of camp for seven days with the leprosy, uh, but she was welcomed back. And as a matter of fact, the story tells us that uh, Moses and Aaron would not lead Israel out of where they were until she was back. And so she was forgiven, not just forgiven, she was restored. And this is an important piece as we talk about leadership as well. There, there is this idea, some, for some reason, here in the West, and it might be other places as well, but specifically here, that when a person falls, then they're just done and disqualified and can never come back. But there is something to God's pattern of restoring leaders back to the place that he would have them go. I mean, you see that with David, for example, right? David sins with Bathsheba, uh, ends up having, his, uh, having her husband killed, and, and God doesn't take his kingdom away. David's relationship is restored, and, and he moves in the direction of the Lord again. You find here with Miriam that there is this re restoration of her role back in Israel, right? She was removed. She's outside the camp. She's got this leprosy. She's considered unclean. People aren't supposed to have anything to do with her. So remember, like she was saying that I want people to listen to me too. I am also a prophet of God. And what does God do? He says, I'm going to remove you from the people that you're saying you want to lead. And then he restores her back into it. That's a powerful message. It is a message that is true of Psalm 103, where it says, as far as the east is from the west, I'm going to remove your transgressions from you, remove your sins from you, remove your consequences from us. That's how big God's forgiveness is. And so in the life of Miriam, we see a person who's sharp, quick-witted, influential in the life of Moses. She was a woman who was made a leader in Israel. She was a prophet of God. She led in worship. But we also see that what happens and how God deals with a leader making a mistake. A leader making a mistake where we don't necessarily know all the details in terms of the motivations outside of the indicator that 
she wants to be considered equal with Moses in terms of, hey, look, God talks to us as well, or through us as well. But we see how God deals with people, and even when leaders make mistakes, there's forgiveness, and God restores them. And so when we deal with things like this, this woman of the Bible that we focus on, this strong woman of the Bible by the name of Miriam, what we find is that there's a lot to learn. And there's more to unpack with Miriam than what we've got here. And I would encourage you to read up on her, read the stories, and, and learn more from her. But for now, understand that this particular story of her interaction with Aaron and being disgruntled with Moses has a practical application for us today. Think about the leaders in your life. And in this context, it's a spiritual leader and, and certainly uh, one could say the community leader, right? So think about the community leaders in your life. Maybe they're, um, maybe it's a leader of your small group. Maybe it's a leader, uh, one of the leaders in your church. Maybe it's one of the leaders in your municipality. Maybe, maybe it's one of the leaders uh, in, in the province or in the country or the world. Like whatever it is, you pick. It could be your boss. Like whatever leaders you have in your life, ask the question, how am I having confidence in my leader and making it easy for them to lead me? How am I dealing with any concerns that I have with the leader? Am I coming to them because I want to see some correction, or do I want to wound them? Am I actually concerned, or do I in some way want their role and influence? So I want people to listen to me more than them. These are important questions, because there is an order to how God has designed His church, His family. I can't get past Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. This is, this is something that would have been said to Miriam in that same way. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Like this isn't a small responsibility. It's massive. Because they're the ones who have to give an account on your behalf to God. That's a big deal. It says, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. That's some tough stuff. I pray that we will be a people that will forgive the way God forgives, that we will seek restoration where it's, where it's necessary, right, or where we're dealing with things, um, but that we would also handle things appropriately in terms of, look, like let's pray for a person, let's confront the things that need to be confronted, and let's, let's restore people after those confrontations take place. And where there are situations, according to 1 Timothy 5, where there are situations where the leader is unwilling, they can want to continue in their sin, well, then we got to call them out publicly. Like, that's when the public call-out happens. Not before. It's not, you know, that we sit around and we have conversations about people that's no different than what Miriam and Aaron did. Let's not do that. Let's not be like that. Let's confront what needs to be confronted. And if it's not dealt with, then, well, then we make it a public thing so that everybody learns from it. But then let's also be a people of forgiveness, right? As far as the east is from the west, so the Lord removes our transgressions from us. We'd love to be recipients of this stuff. Why don't we treat it as a way that we need to be as well, right? We're to be like him, so let's be like him in our forgiveness and restoration of people as well.
Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that, um, that there would be a deeper study done here, that we would learn more about leadership and, and what it means to confront people, what it means to submit and, and have confidence in leaders, what it means to be able to correct versus wound, be able to have genuine concern versus jealousy. Like, what does it mean for us to do this thing in relationship with each other that we call church and life? and Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would pursue forgiveness and restoration for all people. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen.